0: You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. It is the end of of 2020 quite mercifully my name is Chance Solemn Pfeiffer and I'm Noah Ballard we're here to wrap up this year there's all kinds of great content on the playlist.net recapping the best of everything in movies from 2020 Noah and I have elected to do the breakout directors of the year in in a time when I would say it might be tougher to assess that than normal? Noah, how was this exercise for you? It was tough. Um, You know,
1: when you type into Google movies of 2020, (laughs) you get a lot of, like, bizarre things coming back at you and then movies I had forgotten were released this year.
0: A little bit in retrospect, I felt like when I looked at our main seven here, it was all people who I felt like defined their their voice like everyone on this list I have a sense now of like what they might do and what they might bring to the table Um, and I don't think we have anyone on here who put out their debut this year we should shout them out at the front we're gonna talk Lee Winnell for Invisible Man Kitty Green for The Assistant Jason Hare for The Last Dance Garrett Bradley for Time, Sean Durkin for The Nest, Eliza Hittman for Never Really, Sometimes, Always, and Josephine Decker for Shirley. Now, caveat, of course, if you're a cinephile, a film turbo nerd, you might have known who some of these people were before. I knew who a couple of them were before. But I think here what we have is people now that a lot of people know and their next films are anticipated.
1: For sure. Is that fair? And I would imagine they'll probably get a level of studio or streaming money that they wouldn't have before this movie.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to say, real quick, before we dive in, that the Playlist Podcast Network also contains such wonderful shows as the Playlist Podcast, The Discourse, The Fourth Wall. You can find new shows on the feed all the time, wherever you get your podcasts Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find them. Give us a rating. And uh and a kind comment if uh if you feel so inclined. Appreciate it. All right, my friend. You wanna start with Lee Winnell?
1: Let's do it. So the Invisible Man 2020, we had already talked about this one. February. Um in February. Um, but I wonder if your opinion has changed at all or what you remember between viewings here. Um When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she's being hunted by someone or somebody no one can see. What happened to him?
0: Adrian's dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not
1: dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible.
0: I think that I remember this movie rather fondly because of something that in my day we used to call an audience reaction. Um, Fuck. (laughs) Um. Lee Winnell in this movie, I think one of his great strengths, honestly, is just the ability to apply fucking force. Uh, oh, yeah? To. Uh... <laughs> to a movie with a, a budget and some scares. Um, you get to just think about the production design of that suit, the moments he sets up, particularly like when uh, Elizabeth Moss and Cecilia is Cecilia's toss and paint around. They're incredibly memorable. And I just remember the collective gasps, heaves, and shrieks of the audience. And boy, is that something I've really missed in the succeeding 10 months. What are you, what about you?
1: Well, this was the last movie that I saw in theaters. Uh, And I'm just healing the, like, nail scars that Lucy left in my arm just from, like, digging into me during the bigger scares of this. Uh, But, yeah, this is the kind of movie that really did, I think, benefit from being widely seen in theaters. Also because of, like, the sound design of it. Oh, my God. Like, that dude... Is totally fine with just like blowing your skull open with like some tones. Right. You know, I love some horror tones and juxtaposed with some like pretty groundbreaking visual scares. You know, I think that scene, it still comes to mind, the scene with Elizabeth Moss in the kitchen fighting herself or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable, you know, the level of technical artistry that went into that. And I've watched – there's some cool YouTube videos about – you can see how they're making it with, like, a guy in a a suit, like, Mm -hmm. who will be edited out later. Um, But it's pretty neat. But, yeah, that's, that's like, breathtaking – technical cinema that I will not soon forget and I think really puts Winnell in like that category for me of like if this dude had like fifty million more
0: dollars, what would he do? Yeah, just for a little context, the budget of this puppy was seven and it made one forty. So that's uh
1: That's how you get like into the you know, big franchise, big money Kind of thing is a win like that.
0: Well, let's talk about how Lee Winnell might be sort of the poster child at the beginning of this podcast for our definition of breakthrough. He went from being um, James Wan's friend, collaborator, screenwriter. And if you knew who the director of Insidious 3 was, maybe you knew who Lee Winnell was. Upgrade was a good movie, but now you're talking about someone who is working constantly with Jason Blom, who's turning Upgrade into a TV series, who's working on a Wolfman movie with Ryan Gosling, who is set to remake Escape from New York. He Hell beca- yeah. He became someone <laughs> who, for instance, when I looked up Lee Whannell on the playlist, there were three different items about what he's going to do next. So... Break out. that's incredible we should say real quick that because i believe this is an episode of the film reviewing reappraising podcast be real we are gonna rate each movie according to our rating system um but to be clear we think they are all good to quite good to very good um and want to give them all a lot of love especially as independent films at the end of the year here so our hearts go out here's how we rate movies on be real On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care!
1: Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive,
0: Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October.
1: Once more, we play our dangerous game.
0: Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or
0: Stargate. In my regards to King Todd asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I like The Invisible Man. Um my small complaints that it like uses the same trick over and over mostly have to do with the fact that it's about an invisible man. And, uh, I don't care to relitigate that. It's a good movie. Um, it ended up in my top 20 of the year and, uh, yeah. Wow. Any any final words on it?
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, I still think about this one a lot and it also does make me yearn for the days back in the theater, uh, where I can experience something like this again. Um, but yeah, definitely continues to be good, good for me, um, and I'm I'm down for all the content that you just described.
0: There it is. Okay, let's go to another one that we reviewed back in February. This is uh, the Assistant from Kitty Green. Kitty Green coming into her. Uh, this was like her. Debut fiction feature. She made some really interesting documentaries. Ukraine is not a brothel, and casting John Bonet. Um, but this we talked about as a, a pretty precise, um, layered, frighteningly, frighteningly observant portrait yeah. of um, sexual predations it, and exploitation in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, IMDb calls it a searing look. Siren uh, at a day Dad. in the life of an assistant to a powerful executive. Don't As you hate Jane it when Jane follows her? Oh, there's more. As Jane follows her daily routine, she grows increasingly aware of the insidious—no, just <laughs> insidious—abuse that threatens every aspect of her position. You're relatively new to the company.
0: I mean, I've been working here for nearly two months.
1: And you're under a lot of stress. Entry-level jobs in this industry are tough, right? Long hours? First one in, last one out. Good night. You're smart. You have to be smart. It's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. I went those new pages before I got on the plane. He promised him uh, first thing. Where we at? 200K in two points. That's
0: Maybe I can put in a good word for you. No, he'll hire externally.
1: Listen, his schedule has shifted. Does 7 p.m. work? Still at the
0: hotel, or? Yes. What? This is turkey. I said chicken. (laughs) There's a girl waiting. Oh, her. She's been here before. A few times. What is it? The wife. Say he's in an important meeting. No, say he's in a screening. I overreacted. It was not my place to question your decision. I will not let you down again. You know, you can always come to us, right? Come to us first, okay? So this is on Hulu uh, right now if you want to check it out. You just rewatched it, right? It did. How did it feel going back?
1: I think it's a really interesting case study, you know, of the life experience of living in New York city, especially when you work for people who have a lot of money and you don't, um, I know a tiny little nugget about that. Uh, but this is like times a thousand, uh, with yeah. the influence that is clearly like, it's almost like a movie about the adjacent room to where the movie's happening. Totally. You know, and it's really kind of fascinating that side of things. um you know, I think I said it on the uh the first podcast we did about the assistant, but like knowing some of the people personally who have appeared in some of these documentaries and you know, court filings and stuff about like the Weinstein, you know, you know, someone that was his assistant, like i I just it means something more to me emotionally, I think like, kind of filling this character with the composite of, of people that I've interacted with in the real world. Um, that being said, the second watch was a little bit uh, slower, I would say. Like, I think the trick this movie has to play is that they're like, isn't that scene? And that's almost kind of like what it, you know what it's gimmick, I don't want to say gimmick, but like what it's, it's turn is that you'll never really see Weinstein walk through the door, mm-hmm. you know? And I think once that the shock of that wears off and you let a few months pass and then you rewatch um, it doesn't have the, the urgency that it did on first view.
0: You know, it's, it's baked into its construction. It's the kind of movie that, um you know, shows you, 500 instances of workflow, mundane workflow, and you know that every little one of them betrays something. And I think, I still think probably the strongest element was something we talked about with our guest Cassie DaCosta from Daily Beast back in February, which is that the the part of it that is searing, according to, to IMDb, is that, you know, covering for a sexual predator is just something that is on Jane's schedule. But it's just as much the schedule that is the problem. It's just an indictment of, you know, what it's like to work on this rung of the ladder when this rung of the ladder is so awful.
1: Right. But the ladder itself is also pretty awful. Right. You know, I think on rewatch, it was clear that... Just as you're saying that it's more an indictment of the system. You know, the idea that this glamorous car comes to pick her up at five o'clock in the morning or whatever. You know, and then she's kind of greasing the wheels between, you know, the seamless lives of people more important than her. uh, That it kind of calls out this idea of like, why are we not? Like you're waiting for someone to scream because of how ridiculous everything is. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and of course, there's this really powerful scene where she like cleans up, you know, a room after, you know, the supposed Weinstein person has left, you know, after one of these, you know, encounters that we've been horrified to learn about uh, in the past few years. But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's well done. I mean, it's clear that this person has uh, Kitty Green a documentary background you know the artful composition of you know this character just making a few photocopies uh yeah. is just a fabulous image um and maybe there isn't a fur- maybe what i'm frustrated about is that there isn't a further level that you can go to with this film you know like a little bit more in the character development um space yeah. We're going to talk about that with another
0: movie coming up, I think. But yeah, when you sap the color out of a main character to make a point, I think that kind of hurts your revisit value. Exactly. But I I do think it's amazing that it exists. I was trying to remember who put it out and it was Bleecker Street. It does legitimately I think it's one of the better things they put out in a while and it does legitimately feel to its credit like the kind of movie that a larger studio like just doesn't want anything to do with because it is so damning as to how these positions like eat people. And also right. I think that Matthew Mcfaden scene is one of the scenes of the year. So, tip of the hat to Kitty Green. I love you're
1: you're you're quite right that that is you know I wonder if he gets like a like a goofy Oscar nomination for something
0: like that he certainly will not I always love your Oscar predictions but it is great
1: (laughs) interesting I don't know this year's Oscars are gonna be weird man that's true I think this one is a quintessential good bad
0: I'm in agreement Next up is the cultural phenomenon known as The Last Dance. And your breakout director here is uh, Jason Hare. I don't really want to debate whether this is a movie. I think we certainly all experienced it as TV. I think we experienced a lot of movies in 2020 as TV. Um, But it was kind of... He's the only person on this list who made something that... Millions and millions of people tuned into over and over again. You guys not allowed? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What time is it? My mentality was to go out and win at any cost.
1: Jordan is the most talented player in the NBA by far the show of the 90s the team of the 90s How you doing?
0: whenever they speak Michael Jordan they should speak Scottie Pippen we created
1: an image that people want to live up to I think that's all you can hope for
0: Here's my Jason Hare point. I think he becomes a really interesting feature at a fascinating, troubling, um, you know, kind of chillingly real intersection of whatever modern documentary filmmaking is. Because I think part of what he's, the role he stepped into is like documentarian as politician, as buffer between larger-than-life corporate figures. And this is something that, like, Ken Burns, like, got upset about because he's like, well, this isn't journalism because you needed Michael Jordan to produce it. And while I totally understand where Ken Burns is coming from, and on the one hand, he's right, this movie doesn't exist if one of Jason Hare's great skills is not wheel-gracing and getting in a room with someone uh, like Michael Jordan and getting him to answer questions that he hasn't answered in Thirty years,
1: that being said, though, there is a certain like kid gloves uhness about the fact that we never really interact with the subject's family at all, oh yeah, like didn't you think that was totally <laughs> well, bizarre?
0: Oh, yeah, it's one of the great compromises of the doc is Michael Jordan is not gonna consent to having you like have his kids talk about what kind of father he was and certainly not going to talk to his ex-wife.
1: Exactly. And it's so interesting to position Michael Jordan with this kind of movie in that, I mean, that's like the American hero, right? Like whether it's, you know, people who build bridges and buildings or oil fortunes or whatever, or sport like this huge sports brand. That's more than an athlete. He's like, He's just now at the end of one of a spectrum of greatness. Uh, but this is myth making, like at its core, right?
0: It investigates a little a few notions of myth making within itself along the way. Like one of the great moments is the part the thing, you know, the legend of Michael Jordan like booting that uh Washington Bullets rookie basically out of the league, like ruining his career because Michael Jordan was like, yeah, he talked shit to me once and then I put up 40 on him. And then it, Jason Hare gets Michael Jordan to admit that that guy never said anything to him. He just like made it up. So yes, being sort of a <laughs> pathological psycho is one of Jordan's things and he appears willing to reveal it because he thinks it's funny or it's like the glimpse behind the curtain that he's allowing you to give, which is part of any good self-aware myth-making. But Hare still has to I go think- find it. I think you're right. I think that there, this movie is aware
1: of the ridiculous constraints of, you know, however Michael Jordan's going to be involved, that it gets its wins from things like that. Like picking apart well-known NBA mythology and being like, actually, that was like a little bit, you know, pomp and circumstance more than it was. But there's like a lot of really compelling, you know, shit that like. Michael like lost his footing in some greater than him thing. And then like the next day he comes out and just does something absolutely bananas. And he did it a dozen times in his life.
0: Mm -hmm. It's crazy to call it like revolutionary. And it almost, there's a part of me, some stupid purist part that thinks it feels like cheating, but the handing Michael Jordan an iPad trick I think created the absolute most memorable moments of this doc to see Michael Jordan laugh in Gary Payton's digital face after Gary Payton was like, I, you know, I was going to lock him down. We were going to come back in that series. And then just that, the meme of Jordan throwing his head back and then it create that little act creates <laughs> live moments too, where, um, Jason is trying to hand him the iPad, and Jordan's talking about Isaiah Thomas walking off in the, is it the '90s Eastern, the '90 Eastern Conference Finals where they beat the Pistons? Finally, um, he goes, "You can show me anything you want. There's no way you can convince me he wasn't an asshole." And then he takes the iPad to see what Isaiah Thomas said about the walk off. Um, that's great shit. There, there. No matter how glossy and commercial it gets. He's still got on in a room with eight hours with that guy. And that guy, when you put that camera that close to his face, can't hide the, t- the little twitches and can't hide the damage of the cigars and the alcohol. And it's just a glimpse of something we didn't think we were going to glimpse. I didn't.
1: But you got to love that the cigars and the alcohol are there on the table.
0: Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like the, he really does own it uh, yeah. in a, like a true American legend sort of way.
0: Whatever Jason Hare does next is gonna. Wh- where do you go from the last dance? Other than to try and match it with something, with something. Probably huge? some
1: shitty like Scientology documentary or something.
0: <laughs> I think we have enough of those. Um, but my case is that he has become instantly one of the you know top ten documentary names in America, and he basically became like the Russo brothers or something of navigating this. Yeah, this is this his space. super
1: size me. He's the Morgan Spurlock of the
0: 2020s now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Fine>. <laughs> Last dance is good, good, and I won't hear otherwise. Maybe no, little, it's it's great. Maybe a little long. Noah says. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just something
1: so arrogant about like an an eight part doc. No, ten part doc. It is ten part eight hours there's something and it's only it's not even michael jordan's like whole life they cut out his whole family and they still (laughs) had 10 episodes
0: and the washington wizards
1: and the washington wizards unbelievable
0: let's talk about the movie time which is on prime video and is the second feature from garrett bradley you want to synopsize this one noah
1: Fox Rich fights for the release of her husband, Rob, who is serving a 60-year sentence in prison.
0: Judge's office.
1: My name is Sybil Richardson, and uh, my family is awaiting on a ruling regarding my husband's matter. I was just wondering if you might have any information on like an update on it.
0: No, we don't have anything yet with us
1: on Monday. Yes, ma'am, thank you so much. Okay, all
0: right. Bye-bye. One of the headlines this about so nice. this movie and the thing that makes it feel experimental and different in the doc space is the heavy intermingling of home video footage from Fox Rich's life with. Uh, Present day footage of her trying to get Rob released from prison. How did that scrambling of visual and time work for you, Noah?
1: Well, I think beginning with like a pretty decent chunk of just home video stuff uh, is a somewhat, you know, ambitious and maybe risky move because you do risk alienating. Uh, The viewer, if they're not immediately pulled into the, you know, the tales of this person's life. Uh, But the the ace in the hole is, of course, that uh, Fox Rich has a super fascinating life and was able to record like really interesting moments of honesty and humanity to what end? You know, that's like something I'd like to discuss with you. Uh, you know, like what was her plan when, you know, 15 years ago she like turned on her whatever to record her sort of live journal? It's um, a great question. But I think like what we do see and giving, you know, like a circumference of the central relationship here, you know, with these. Quick scenes of the, you know, the early love between man and wife and the kids and the growing business and the growing social standing and how that is eroded and how, you know, faces change and people grow up and like time passes. Cause that's what this movie's trying to synthesize is time passing and like the things that change and the things that don't. Uh, and I think seeing how we sort of think of ourselves just juxtapose onto Fox rich here, like seeing how she views herself over time, always though, knowing that she's like the center of it uh, is truly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's like getting lost in someone you haven't known or haven't seen for a while's like social media page and trying to like piece together the, you know, the fragments of their life to create a narrative. Like she's so there's something so charismatic about this woman that you just like, You buy in.
0: I think that Garrett Bradley deserves immense credit for just the way that this movie is constructed. The way that we move forward and backward and when she tees up a montage and when she lets us sit in a still shot. um, And you just have this, you know, you have these natural gaps, of course, where like all of a sudden the six-year-old twins are 18 and you have that feeling that you assume that Fox Rich has is like, shit, a decade slipped away and these kids did not get to see their dad or that feel Or That feeling. Um, I mean, that's, that's a feeling of truly heightened injustice, but there, you know, there, there is a feeling of unfairness, of course, to all time. We cannot control what, you know, slips between our fingers and what lasts forever. And Garrett Bradley obviously argues that the moments that last forever are, you know, being on hold with the fucking courthou- courthouse while the second clerk who doesn't really care about your husband's umpteenth appeal leaves you on hold and then doesn't return. I mean, you that's just, one of the,
1: yeah, just, that's one of the most frightening scenes I think I've seen in a movie this year. Right. Uh, is her just waiting for the person to take her off of holds Uh, which Bradley like makes us sit in. Uh, And then on the other side of it, like it really is, you know, we're talking about like, you know, I, I didn't mean to, you know, by saying Fox rich is such an interesting person, mean to take away at all from Garrett Bradley's construction of this movie. And as a documentarian, you know, even as much as saying that, like finding a subject like this is one of the hardest parts of being a documentarian. But I think this movie, and it's interesting talking about it back to back to the last dance, uh, You know, Fox Rich had to provide all this footage, you know, to be cut together at the whims of another artist. Mm -hmm. Like, there is a certain buy in that, you know, Garrett Bradley definitely had to navigate in order to keep this person interested. However, by placing the documentary next to this ongoing court case and then, like, the just triumphant climax of this movie. The documentary shaped how it kind of played out in a way, like just seeing Fox monologue after she like hangs up after being so polite to, you know, the fifth call we see yeah. and she goes through the entire range of trauma in 30 seconds is unbelievable like so much so that you feel like it like it was scripted just the way this woman's like working through it so it's such a calculation and it's such a uh, a system that she has built in her mind but and being able to capture that truly candid you know the only time that anyone curses in the movie is that scene Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's otherwise a pg-13
0: and it's right on the heels of All of that, you get so much Southern phone etiquette. Um, Yes. Yeah, it's quite a contrast. And the other great thing that it does is just reveal the family, the time you spend with her sons, and you can kind of put together the pieces of how they are such products of her. Um, And the absence of a father, sure, but also just like, what is it like to be among the many sons of a woman with this much Drive and Belief and Ability ability To raise herself up No matter performative or not And I love the scene of um, her, her One son who I think is one of the middle Ones where he's like doing a College student government Debate and you see that He is essentially doing an amalgamated Impression of Barack Obama And his mom and I just love that the doc lets you trace that without commenting too hard.
1: Yes. A weaker movie would have had like the actual juxtaposition of the two people. But you get from the – I mean that's the point of the movie is you see the children as an extension of their mother and seeing how – you know, some of them she gave, like one son, she gives this brilliance for like languages and like learning how things work. And to one son, she gives the ability to orate. And to one son, she gives like the ability to, you know, take something so detailed like dentistry and figure out like how to do it and, like, be successful at it and go through all the steps. Like, she's good at going through the steps of something, figuring out systematically, okay, what's the next phone call I need to make? And after this, like, what piece of paper needs to be notarized? And, like, her sons all have that too, begrudgingly in some cases, but they all have it.
0: This might be, like, a judgmental thing to say, but if somebody's just like, do you want to watch a documentary that's half home videos. Most of the time the answer is no. That sounds Fuck no. sounds precious and indulgent and obscure at the same time. And the fact that Garrett Bradley is able to make it work, put it together as you said with you know realist right there in the moment process, but also end up making a movie that feels Lyrical and creative and beautifully scored and with a few directorial flourishes. I don't know what I've, of all the people here. I I think I I don't know what Garrett Bradley's going to do next. Apparently, her short film America is great. You can't watch it right now. Um, it was on the festival circuit in the spring. Um, I feel like she could do anything she wants because she's synthesizing things here that don't work together in ninety percent of cases
1: yeah I don't know I really this was this was i think the one that at least emotionally too stirred me the most like oh, yeah. I was in tears by the end of this one
0: for sure you gotta be it's a good um you have to be heartless not to be yep. um I think this movie is a good good um it landed at number ten in my best of twenty twenty as of right now, so very high um and I'm so excited to see what Gary Bradley does next
1: I think it's a good good too, and I think. You will find more layers of it uh, if you do watch it again. You know there were a few visual like callbacks and stuff. Uh, you know the way people are dressing, hairstyles, sort of evolving. You know the physicality of communicating with people, but not having them see your your face with her and her husband and how that relationship evolves over twenty plus years. Um, but yeah, I I, th- I really I agree. I think it's a good good
0: it plays out with the fallibility of memory and sequencing too which also makes me think yeah that there's got to be more there to watch because you even as you're watching it you know you're forgetting it does that make sense
1: exactly yeah and it's i mean it's a lot of footage to take in uh, as well as piecing together the narrative of this of these events and just also you know being overcome with You know, this movie has a lot of joy in it as well, like especially in the relationship between mother and sons. Um, Seeing these kids grow uh, is a similar experience to like the kind of the boyhood model.
0: You want to talk about The Nest and Sean Durkin?
1: Oh, fuck yeah.
0: So Sean Durkin made uh, a movie nine years ago that I think a lot of film lovers remember called martha marcy may marlene with uh, elizabeth olsen with elizabeth olsen and john hawks no did you see that movie back in the day
1: no but i can't believe that it's been nine years i know
0: this is um was that (laughs) pre-coronavirus i thought
1: that came out in january
0: i remember liking martha marcy may marlene it certainly showed sean durkin's facility with letting great actors cook which is something that he does again very well here things are dried up here for me oh! 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 Yeah! there's an opportunity where london this would be our fourth move in 10 Turn it years backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. This is a fresh start.
0: How about this?
1: You shouldn't be working for someone else. Be your own boss.
0: Build your own place. Own your own horses. Something doesn't feel right. It's not your job to worry. You leave that to your husband
1: scares me that you actually think that life for an entrepreneur and his American family begins to take a twisted turn after moving into an English country manor. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, aforementioned zeitgeist, the chance is talking about, like is the late eighties when the West was rising, uh, and capitalism was king and people had made a lot of money at the end of Reagan. And this particular guy living in the suburbs of New York, commuting in with a totally nice life and a totally nice house and a totally nice family decides that the amount of money he's made in this, in this market, uh, is not enough. He needs to like cash in, Uh, In a way that will yield uh, him sort of validating, I guess, his upbringing as a poor person uh, in the UK. He can't just do it abroad. You know, there's that tension, too, between, like, the UK thinks America, like, their wins are not legitimate because they do them without style and class. Um, So he wants to take this nest egg that they've built, the titular nest, Bring it back home and see if he can't make a fortune there the way he has in the U.S. And that fucking faulty dream is the antagonist that destroys, you know, four characters' lives.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. It is a total, like, um, forcing one. It's like a You Can't Go Home Again movie.
1: It absolutely is a, it's a, you can't go home again movie. And it's also like a haunted house movie. Right. So Carrie Coon is the mom and the stepdaughter, well, Jude Law's stepdaughter. And then they have a son together, uh, who has, as I can self-diagnose has anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And it doesn't translate well, uh, going five hours ahead for whatever reason.
0: The trust in the actors in this movie is amazing. I, the whole opening sweep in suburban New York, you see Jude Law's Rory and Carrie Coon's Allison behaving in these like certain marital agreement ways that makes makes him look pretty good and her look sort of like the difficult one. I, the the thing of him bringing her coffee and waking her up every morning for the length of the movie is such a fascinating gesture because it seems like such a gesture full of love in the beginning, and it feels like such an empty gesture in the end, but the gesture didn't change. It's just your perspective on who the characters are that changed. And I think it's such a frightening movie about the roles that one inhabits in a long-term relationship, because they are just roles. Ooh, very nice. I think it's also
1: important, the setup at the beginning, to see that... Rory Jude Law is his finances are deeply theoretical, whereas <laughs> Carrie Coon's Allison is liquid. Like, ah. you see her get cash yeah. from someone, and you kind of know in the background, like, this person actually may be making the real money. And of course, she has what seems to be a lucrative uh, training facility for horses.
0: Mm-hmm. Carrie Coon is unbelievable in this movie. Her I love how quickly... I mean, this should be a character who's very sad, and I think she is very sad, but it is to her credit um, how quickly she comes to anger. That empty stomach and that cigarette and the way she's able to... You know, when she tells Jude Law, get the fuck out of my face, you fucking pig. It's a katana of emotion directed at him. And... And Jude Law is fantastic. I just love how like everything he does now is just this weird little referendum on the fact that like maybe he wanted to play Tom Ripley but he couldn't. And this <laughs> <laughs> this movie feels like that. Like he's not. I mean, he's Jude Law is a sud, forever like an incredibly handsome person, but he's not that hot young guy anymore. This character is no. not either. But he has to. But he can't live in this world unless he's at least a guy with a hot young idea.
1: Oh, he's got to have a hot young something. Yeah. yeah. No, but he will forever be Dickie Greenleaf. He's mm-hmm. like, he has this privilege behind him, but he can't seem to like make anything work in earnest. And that's a really interesting role to be playing over and over again.
0: I think this movie is a good good. Um, I also think it's one of the best movies this year. Yes. All right. <laughs>
1: I was really taken with this one. Uh, If you like a a movie set at a creepy old beautiful house, uh, this is a movie for you. Um, Knives out, uh, whatever you wanted to compare it to. Um, And great acting on display. Um, As I told Chance via text message a couple days ago or whatever, This falls into like my favorite category of movie, either where it's like people who like buy things they can't afford, and so they're around them, but they like have a lot of anxiety about it, uh, or you know, just sort of adjacent to hyper wealth, uh, a la Parasite or something. I love that shit. So like this movies, this movie's great. Uh, Good, good for sure.
0: Durkin, it all it almost does feel like it's kind of a. a real unlikelihood that this, like, is a movie. Durkin, to me, feels destined to make a very adult drama for AMC. You know what I mean? Oh my. Like a TV show? Yeah. Anyway, I really hope it's not another nine years. This was great. Let's talk about Eliza Hitman, who directed the film Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, it is her third feature. She made Beach Rats back in 2017. Um, but this is, for me, the first time I had her name cemented in my mind. And frankly, because of the way that the this weird movie year unfolded, when people were sort of doing their quarter and mid-year, like, what are the really good movies? Eliza Hittman and Never Really Sometimes always kept coming up because it was like one of those last movies that made it out. Into theaters, which I think raised its profile um, a little bit, and 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 good for her and good for this film. Um, let's dig into it, Noah. What's the synopsis?
1: A pair of teenage girls in rural Pennsylvania travel to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. I think IMDb is sounding a little bit like the first nurse that this uh, <laughs> young woman encounters. Uh, yeah, I think medical help is maybe not uh, exactly what she's looking for
0: (laughs) the bedside manner of the IMDB description which like (laughs) invites you to use that somewhat mocking voiceover (laughs) is not quite what this movie is
1: this IMDB synopsis wants me to watch a 25 minute video about when life truly begins
0: I didn't see you at school today I went to the doctor what's wrong? problems? Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the
1: most magical sound you will ever hear.
0: Down beneath the ashes and stone. I'm just not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. Sure in I think you should try another place. Going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. I used to be on this Who came with you today? My cousin.
1: Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here?
0: Where's the rest of the money? I think my favorite part. Of this movie's design, which is a, a, a funny word to use, the way it you know attempts to be very kind of spare and, and neorealist in its in in its aesthetic, but it, it is a design, is just the way that Eliza Hitman is able to show how a teenage life in some ways is Just moving forward automatically. It is just a lot of like, even when you're a kid, sometimes you just feel like this is just happening to me, and it's everyone else who's editorializing you and your experience and the things around you. And everyone that Autumn seems to encounter, this is a movie that very wisely starts with her on stage at a talent show, you know, being received by an audience. Like, what do they make of her very kind of raw performance? The question for a lot of the rest of the movie is, like, what do people make of her life, and what effect does that have on her? Everything from, you know, the jeers of the teenage boys at her song to this very, very troubling moment when her sort of her distant uh, father, or stepfather is like showing a lot of affection to the dog and calls the dog a slut for like liking his affection so much which is on one hand fairly innocuous and on the other hand is deeply deeply troubling because of like what it means about her and how women are spoken about in this world and i think that's what i don't know if this movie is a great character study but it certainly does a great job of studying everything around the character. Right. Well, I think what's interesting about
1: it, I think you're scratching at it is the idea that when you're a teenager and like the problem in your life is home, you don't think about trying to find another home, mm. like you don't try to put together the things that, you know, can like a place to sleep or a place to eat or a place to go to the bathroom or like whatever it happens to be like in your, in your little world. Like she's totally rejecting all of that stuff. And like you said, I mean, New York city is the place if you just want to like keep finding, you know, situations that you're moving forward. Um, at least, you know, pre March, 2020. Um, but yeah, no, I think your, your point is really good. In not making this like a Juno type movie or something where you know, oh, like the parents will come around in the end, and like you know all the a hug at the climax here will will just make everything so much better, and it really becomes a movie that's it's funny having like sort of compared all these movies this week but it kind of falls for me in between the assistant and time where you have this character who's just up against the constructs of this system that allows her to get this thing that she needs not even that she wants that she just needs right uh to live in her life uh and it's so fascinating to see the you know, the little kind of bureaucracy moments that she has to get through just to go through this thing that's horrible.
0: Yeah. It's just all the people who work at the various clinics who are telling her how the process of aborting a pregnancy works, when she has to come back, how much it costs, what the situation is, what she wants, what's her sexual history. Right. Um, yeah. Living, living with that process... And having that compared
1: to to like the setup where she goes in initially to the like the local uh rural Pennsylvania women's health center and like even the fucking OBGYn tech is like, oh, I'm gonna let you listen to your baby's heartbeat, not right. parenthetically the best noise you the most miraculous noise you'll ever hear in your life. And it's like, oh, it doesn't seem like a whole. You know, the menu of options is being presented in front of the 17-year-old who doesn't want to be pregnant. I don't think that Hitman is saying that, oh, this fucking nurse, like she's such a, a, you know, Trumpy, terrible sack because, you know, she said this thing. She's just showing a person who's so myopic as to not understand that maybe the 17-year-old, like, for her, hearing her baby's heartbeat is not the most miraculous thing in her world. The most miraculous thing in her world would be to be able to undo this decision that seems like it may have fallen in the spectrum of a non-consensual sexual act.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think if there's something that bothers me about the movie. I mean, I think Sidney Flanagan's performance as Autumn is really good. I think Talia Ryder's performance as her cousin Skyler is really good. But I think that the that character, Autumn, is so recessive. Um, I mean, it makes something like Michelle Williams' performance in Windy and Lucy look like it's, you know, full of life and, and verve. Like, it is... Very cold and very recessive. And part, again, it feels true. She's this small town um, girl out on her own in a scary... Living in a lonely world. (laughs) (laughs) Took the midnight bus back. Um, Took the midnight bus into Port Authority Terminal. Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) But, you know character and that feels real but you know what else is real is characters who connect and talk and can say some things to their cousin who's come with them for you know just out of the goodness of her heart didn't take a lot of coaxing there and I, there there's just a lot a lot of absence in this movie and that is a choice on Hitman's part and it's a choice that doesn't doesn't pay out a lot in the end
1: I think what's so interesting about this movie in contrast to the others we've talked about is both this and The Assistant are like dramas that, you know, attempt to synthesize documentary, whereas I think Time is a documentary that tries to synthesize being a drama. Beautiful. Uh, And it's, it's sort of... I don't know. I mean, in counterintuitive to me, at least, that there isn't more of a central relationship narrative between these two young women, at least, uh, or really have. Most of the people above a childhood age are either kind of like detached bureaucrats or just like horrible predators.
0: Mm-hmm. I like this. I like this movie. Um, I think it shows a, a level of accomplishment and a level of observation that that is important around an issue that is still just so politicized. To have a movie that is that you know pushes against that or or, or tries to find interesting angles away from that, I think it takes time in a career where someone's interested in making this sort of like subtle the way that the world works um, movie that's somewhere between hyper real and like a little poetic. It it takes some time to figure out what is interesting about people's neutrality and their conflict, which is something that Kelly Reichardt has only gotten better in her career at doing. First Cow is still my favorite movie of of 2020. And I think Eliza Hittman Just the way a couple of these characters are structured is still in that space where it's like, yes, she's showing things in a subtle way, but like the people are bad. A lot, a lot of the people are very, very bad. And it might just take some time to figure out how to show neutrality being interesting. The big caveat here that maybe we're missing is that just Autumn is so terribly traumatized that she is not able... That Hitman is intentionally not sh- showing us her disconnected every turn. That even Skyler is able to play DDR and kind of weirdly make the best of this night out in New York, um, like any seventeen-year-old would. And Autumn just cannot and will not. And there again, maybe something very authentic about that. Um, when it com- she does do
1: the karaoke.
0: Oh yeah, I don't know. Um, Another chance theory busted. I got to quit doing this damn show. Um, <laughs> but for that reason, I think this is a pretty clear good bad.
1: Yeah, you have to know from the jump that a movie that centers on abortion is going to have a real test with our pretty simple grading system. Sorry, we're uh, simple. We're so unbelievably simple. <laughs> That's how we process process big ideas Um,
0: (laughs) by dragging them down to our subterranean level.
1: (laughs) I think it's quintessential good, bad. Like I get it. Like I get that it's well-made and I get the point of it and I get the, you know, impact for people who have lived through adjacent stories to this. Um, But I don't know that I would have the heart to rewatch it.
0: Our last director Josephine Decker has made many movies in her career, trending much more toward the avant-garde and the art house, and surely is an interesting uh, escalation for her because it's trying to marry this um, transgressive, unsettling, uh, pretty powerful sometimes sensibility to an american literary biopic starring elizabeth moss as the mid-20th century um author shirley jackson
1: yes the film is shirley Uh, a famous horror writer finds inspiration for her next book after she and her husband take in a young couple
0: to our suffering my dear
1: there's not enough scotch in the world for that one. Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> we well, you were invited to stay here for a few days. Until we could find a place.
0: Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head.
1: I read your story. What are you doing here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible.
0: Do you know what it's like to have a secret? What are you up to? That girl, what do you think? Try in a bit trashy, but uh, yeah, give it a go. I like you, Rosie. Can I trust you?
1: I feel like we're in the Scottish play. On the verge of madness. What will happen? So, yeah, you said it's Elizabeth Moss. um, The aforementioned husband is uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, a favorite of ours on the podcast here. Play Stanley. Um, And then Odessa Young.
0: She looked familiar, but I don't know if I actually knew her from anything.
1: And then, of course, her husband's Percy Jackson himself, uh, Logan Lerman.
0: That's right.
1: See, this movie begins sort of interestingly with Shirley Jackson at the, I would say, height of her sort of New Yorker fame. You know, the lottery's just been printed and people are losing their minds about that. Um, And then, yeah, they make their money as academics, or at least the husband makes his money as like a tenured faculty member uh, up at Bennington. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels a lot like uh, sort of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Absolutely. Uh, very quickly. Because you have this other couple and there's the idea that she's pregnant, question mark. Um, and yeah, they start to... St- I mean, they invite the this couple who are potential academics or at least the husband is for the school. Uh, and then they kind of play get the guest for the remainder of the movie.
0: Absolutely. Um, and we see the ways in which that's kind of part of Shirley's process as she's writing her 1951 novel hangs a man. Um, I think that is the best part of this movie is the performative aspects of how Stanley and Shirley, um, triangulate and use and just like let these young people, you know, nudge them down these paths that they're 15 years ahead of that they know they are going to go down. Like just how yes. kind of obvious it all is, but how much fun, particularly just incredible actors and like Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg have in making a very cruel show of it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there there is this sort of question of avoiding one's fate. You know, on one hand, uh, this young bride, Rose, like doesn't want to end up like Shirley Jackson, like being confined in her house and being crazy and being rude at dinner or whatever. Uh, But she also doesn't want to become, you know, the put upon academics wife. But then she kind of realizes that the things she doesn't want to become are the same thing. Like it's not, these are not two poles. Like this is the same thing and this is how Shirley has turned out. But then like there's almost this sort of uh, uh, like Midsommar kind of transformation of this young woman to become exactly that thing and, uh, and kind of embrace it in a strange way by taking on certain Shirley Jackson qualities.
0: Mm-hmm. Josephine Decker's style is really interesting applied to this story. Um, Madeline's Madeline was a movie she made a couple years ago, which is like super experimental and is about like performance art and and dance. Um, and it's just really interesting to see. A subject matter that you think is going to be somewhat stayed, which is like the life of a writer. There you expect there to be like a certain neatness, at least to the way Hollywood tends to portray that, but then to have Decker bring in a camera that never stops moving. Like it is befitting of the the eeriness of Jackson's, you know, literary horror. Um, and the the kind of Sound palette that she's used in previous films of just really atonal piano and violin swipes. And I like the way that this movie is made, and it totally matches the pitch of Elizabeth Moss's performance, too, which is off the chain, shall we say.
1: Elizabeth Moss will do anything, uh, and I love that about her.
0: I really um, think she's one of like the 10 best American actors working today.
1: Wow. She's. I think she's unbelievable. I really think the scene with the mushrooms is pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, I thought I was at my fill of poisonous literary mushrooms uh, in movies after Phantom Thread, but I and the beguiled Oh, and the beguiled right? Uh, I just keep keep feeding me those <laughs> mushrooms. I don't care how they make me feel.
0: Yeah, she's just... nurse
1: me back to health, cinema
0: anything you don't love about this movie?
1: I think it, it just borrows maybe a little bit too much from the who's afraid of Virginia Wolf premise that I already kind of set up. Um, especially the climax of this movie where, you know, the, the carpets kind of pulled out from under Logan Lerman, but we really don't know Logan Lerman at all. So like, why would we care about that? It's ultimately it's, you know, sort of a psychosexual journey between these two repressed women. And I think that could have been pushed a little bit further without having to like bring the movie back to reality. I also thought there was an opportunity to, to give a little bit more just consciousness to, to the idea of this missing girl that's giving so much inspiration to Elizabeth Moss uh, you know, that, I mean, we see a couple of these kind of like, you know, grainy, it's sort of like the, the Harry Potter thing where he's like, I see my dad at the river and he makes everything better. And it turns out it's him. Well, there's kind of that, a similar style employed here for like the girl going missing and why you would. And I think there's a, a good read on this idea that, you know, American society, like Kind of kind of sexualizes and romanticizes the idea of the missing girl and the dead girl and whatever, um, as explored in the writings of one Alice Bolin, an UNL grad, had mm. a good book about this. Um, but anyway. I think there's some missed opportunities here when the movie then kind of becomes a, a mank or Trumbo where it's like the manuscript is complete and it's so good. You'll never guess how good it is. (laughs) You know, like it really, the movie kind of like took the tension out of the room when Moss and Stuhlbarg have that confrontation about, you know, the role of women and missing girls and like everything I just talked about. And then, Stoolbar kind of undercuts both Shirley Jackson and the movie by being like, "'Oh, you're so inspired right now. The book must be really, really good. Like it's not that you could actually be upset by this real thing happening. Mm. And then Moss kind of like goes along with it, and then the movie just sort of then becomes more about Rose's
0: unwinding, yeah, the mystery of the missing girl just doesn't really do much for me. i I think as like a literary career movie, this one is sort of sneaky. If you think about, I mean, Shirley Jackson does not seem in great uh, spirits when we meet her, but she's we meet her at this party where everyone is just like, the lottery, so great. And then you have this laborious climb up the stairs as she like goes to bed for two more years. And you're kind of, it's like, <laughs> almost like you're watching uh, a book cycle happen. Where she's like, gotta go, she's gonna go hibernate in this terrible way. And then the ending of the movie, which I won't totally spoil, I don't really think it is spoilable necessarily, but there's a moment of, of marital happiness and um, harmony at the end that's like a little eyes wide shutty, too. Um, and the, the point, I think, is that like she's birthed another book, it is a success, and now the cycle will no doubt repeat.
1: For sure. Yeah, there is something a little winky about that. Uh, you know, that's in the Phantom Thread way, it's like, oh, well, these are the these are the ways we keep each other interested in these relationships by these these cyclical and waxing and waning of, you know, sort of dominance and submissiveness and taking care of each other and whatever it happens to be. But I, I don't know. That felt like a little a little bit more of a reach for what Could have been a more interesting, you know, character study and relationship study between you know, as I've said, these two women and their relationship. But yeah, there's something about this movie that feels like it's good, but not that kind of, you know, recalling this is a great literary biopic kind of grade.
0: It's yeah, the way in which it subverts and clashes with those tropes is both what's really interesting about it, and then I I don't know, it almost like doesn't exist in that space because it's like cutting so far away from it, and uh, you know, I think one of the one of the themes of today is just like uh, at the end of the day, like we like a little earnestness in a character, right. And we're missing that in a couple of these movies.
1: You know, I think in this one especially, you see where the movie could have been a little bit more fun and outrageous and have a little bit more, dare I say, joy. Uh, when you have the scene with Elizabeth Moss confronting uh, like colleague-slash-mistress yeah. at that big mansion, I mean, they have... An hilarious interaction where they're like screaming at each other by the end and lose all sense of that 1950s you know female keeping it together for the sake of the company kind of thing uh, which is I don't know a really great scene
0: I think this is also a good bad
1: you think it's a good bad mm-hmm. um, yeah I'll give it a soft good bad as well cool No objections on my part.
0: We made it to the end. As a rule, we are excited to see what these directors do next. Um, I would just shout out uh, Brandon Cronenberg was someone we almost uh, got on this list who made Possessor this year, which was certainly an improvement over his uh, 2012 movie Antiviral, I thought. Um, And really, I think a sign that he could push his way into that Lee Winnell, Alex Garland space if if given the opportunity to do so. Um,
1: Chance didn't want me to watch that one. He thought it would have been too scary for me.
0: <laughs> and I was right. Um, yeah, you know, there there's some, were some first-time directors whose stuff I liked. Andrew Patterson made this movie, Vast of Night. Cooper Rafe made Shithouse. Emerald Fennell made uh, Promising Young Woman, all movies that I thought were interesting and pretty good, and and names I'll keep track of. So if those, you're interested in some some honorable mentions, that's that's who's hanging around. But Be Real has made it to the end of 2020. How about that, Noah Ballard? I love that. Which I think means we made it too as human beings.
1: Yeah, let's hope the coming year
0: is better. Thanks to the Playlist Podcast Network for hosting us. Everybody out there, um, hope you can find some small joys and little solaces uh, this holiday season. Watch the movies. Let us know what you watch. Um, We're going to do more watch parties. So uh, if you want to hang out with us, uh, be in touch.